one of the things that's a real privilege for me to get to do as a campus minister is that I get to, from time to time, after having walked with y'all for several years, some of you will come to me, and, and I love doing it, by the way, you'll ask me to marry you. Uh, you'll ask me to perform the ceremony. Uh, I won't marry you personally. Sorry, I'm a <laughs> one-woman man. But uh, you'll, you'll often... It's, it's one of the best things in the jo- about the job. And um, one of the things that I do when I'm walking through with the couples, with couples about life together, is we spend a lot of time talking about not just the wedding day, but the marriage as well. Because the wedding day lasts for about... Well, the wedding ceremony lasts for about 40 minutes if I'm doing my job right. And uh, the marriage is going to last a lifetime. Now, what's really interesting, just a little personal anecdotal story here, is that my wife, Laura, when we got back from our honeymoon, it was hilarious. Um, well, it wasn't funny to me. It was, I mean, it was funny to me. It was probably not funny to Laura. We had come home. We'd gotten our bags back into this house that we were renting. I didn't really know what my future was going to look like, so we didn't have a, we didn't have a steady job. Um, but I'll never forget, we were back in our house for the very first time. We were getting ready for bed, and Laura breaks down crying. She's, I mean, like bawling crying. And I didn't even ask her if I could use this story. So, sweetie, I'm so sorry if you hear this on the uh, recording. Anyways, I'm going to get in trouble with doghouse tonight. Um, so don't anybody tell her. Um, yeah, so here's what she asked. What, what's going on? What's, are you okay? What's the matter? And this is what she said. What do we do now? What do we do now? Why? The wedding day was over, the honeymoon was over, and now what? Life began. Why share that story with you? Paul, in his argument throughout the book of Romans, has spent a lot of time talking about this doctrine that we've talked about called justification. This teaching, what Paul is getting across about how you and me, how sinners, imperfect people, are made right with Jesus. And really, that's the beginning of the Christian life, not the end of it. And he is going to spend the next chunk of his letter talking about, quote, what we do now. In other words, we've been brought into relationship with God, but now how do we live life with Him? What will we spend the rest of our days doing as we are in relationship with Him now? Well, chapter 8 of Romans begins to answer that question. And it talks about how God, after making us righteous with Him, does something amazing. And that is, He doesn't just come near to us and sort of shoulder arms alongside of us like a husband and a wife do, but He actually does something far more intimate. He doesn't come near us. He actually comes inside of us. And He does that by the person of the Trinity known as the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And so tonight, we're going to look at what life looks like when one is with the Spirit, when one is, does life with Jesus for the rest of their days. And so tonight, we really want to look at this topic by, by entitling this, Life by the Spirit, Living by the Spirit. And so the question I want to answer is very simple. Here it is. What does a life empowered by the Spirit look like? Make sense? What does a life empowered by the Spirit look like? And Paul's going to tell us three things. One, it's a life of freedom. Secondly, it's a life of indwelling. We're going to look at what that means. And then thirdly, we're going to look at what a life 
of fighting looks like. A life of fighting. So let's take a look first this idea of a life of freedom. Look with me in these first few verses here. Paul says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are a Bible memorizer, if you like to memorize Bible verses, this is one you need to just burn into the gray matter of your head because it is so important. What's been happening, right? We heard last week, Paul has said that he is wrestling with sin. The Apostle Paul, imperfect as he is, wrestling with sin. And he says, who will save me? He cries out, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then right into Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What is his point? He is saying that the result of our standing, and thus God's heart before God, as we are in Christ and His death, is one of no condemnation. None. Nada. Nil. Not one lick. There remains no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you'll also see this. It sets us free, Paul tells us, right? That you have been, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What does that mean? Well, it's this idea of the law of sin and death being the principle that governed your life. That before you became a Christian, the principle of sin and death was what ruled and reigned over you. But now, because of Christ's death death for you, that principle or that law has been snapped such that now the new principle that's operating in your life is the one of the Spirit and of life. That's what He wants you to see. And what that means is two things in particular. One, that sin's penalty, that that the penalty that we have incurred, that Paul has talked about all the way back from Romans 1, chapter 1, verse 18, that that penalty has been borne by Jesus and therefore no longer rests on us. That is great news. Because that means that Christ was penalized for your sins. So the penalty is gone once forever. That's amazing news. But secondly, it also means that sin's power in your life has been snapped as well. We talked about this last week. Paul is telling us that sin is no longer your master. You are no longer its you-know-what, okay? Because Christ has broken its neck. And now the whole point is, is if sin is not your master anymore, Christian, then why are you paying it any homage? Why are you giving it anything? Why are you giving it any principle in your life? It's silliness, Paul would say. That's what it means. And what it means is this, is that there is now freedom to no longer walk in sin's ways and instead freedom to walk with the Spirit. Let me say this about freedom. I think this is a huge word in our culture today. Our culture thinks that freedom, they think of it as, we think of it in terms of absolute freedom. That I ought to be able to do whatever I want and nobody ought to be able to tell me differently how I want to run my life. If you've ever seen the television show Lost, you remember Locke's character. What was his favorite, famous line? I know that show's old. I'm dating myself. I'm so sorry. Hang with me. I needed an illustration. Um... It is, and he says this, no one, don't you tell me what to do. No one tells me what to do. And that's the way a lot of us think about freedom. But let me, let me actually spell something out here. 
that real freedom, that real and true freedom is being set free to something, to do and to live with one's own nature and purpose, their design and their goal. Think about it like this, a fish as at home, right, inside water. What if that fish was like, ah, it's water, it's so confining. I mean, it's always wet. I need to get out of this and experience life on the dry land. If the fish were to go out on the dry land, what happens to the fish? He dies. Because what fish are made for is for life in the water. Secondly, think about it like this. Imagine that you are a five foot nine inch male, okay, and you weigh a buck sixty soaking wet. And imagine you said when you were three or four years old, you said, you know what, I am going to play offensive tackle for the Dallas Cowboys, right? Now in our culture, in our culture, what we have grown up is with what? Your mama and your daddy probably would have looked at you and said, son, you can be anything that you want to be. You just keep trying and you can do that. You, can, you will be the great, best offensive tackle in the whole world. And then finally, the, the boy grows up. He's in his 20s now, and he's still dreaming about the NFL. And like I said, he's 5'9", buck sixty, soaking wet, okay? And the thing is, is that that guy, no matter what, is not free to pursue his dream as an NFL lineman. It won't work. Nobody will ever hire him. Why? Because it's to go against his actual design. He was not made for that that job. I'm so sorry, your dreams are crushed. That's the way it goes. What else? Lastly, I think about it like this too. If you were to take a hammer, which is made for driving nails and not flipping pancakes, but if you woke up one Sunday morning and said, ah, pancakes, where's where's my spatula? I don't know it. Go grab the hammer. And you try to start flipping pancakes with a hammer... And then you get all pissed off because it sucks as a pancake flipper. And you're like, oh, this hammer sucks. And you throw it away. That would be silly. Why? Because if you were to judge that the hammer was a poor pancake flipper, you are using it for something against its intended purpose. Why say all this? True freedom. The freedom that Romans chapter 8 is talking about is that you have been set free from the condemnation that sin brings. But you've also been liberated to something, to live within your design, which is an intimate and deep communion with the loving Creator God that has made you. That's where real liberality is. That's where true freedom is. And I'll say it this way. That is where the true blank, fill in your name, will become whole. That you were made, that the true Ryan, I'll just use me, is made and will be seen and known the more I am in living in intimate communion with Jesus. That's what this text is trying to tell us. Let me drive this home a little bit. And here's sort of a test that you can sense whether or not you're beginning to get this picture of the true freedom, a life of freedom that comes to you. Here it is. If you are a Christian, I want to ask you one question. What do you think that God thinks of you when you blow it? when you royally screw up? What do you at that moment think that God's opinion of you is? Let's say that you go out one night and get utterly wasted. You wake up the next morning with a raging hangover and maybe some raging guilt. In that moment, if I were to ask you, so, what does God think of you this morning, right now, with your pounding headache? 
You see, I think many of us would say, eh, he's probably not, he probably does, I, I don't know. And I want to say this, the astounding news of the gospel is that there is no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Say it another way. What, if you think, what do you think God thinks of you when you, quote, are backsliding? When you're not all that serious about Him? When you say, I'm struggling, or when my faith is really low and weak? What does God think of you in that moment? You see, many people think that they, have, that they in those moments have come back underneath the condemnation of God, and then they have to begin to argue with God why they really aren't that way. You see, so we sort of double down on our efforts and we make promises to God that we'll just do better. So please, God, like us again. Or two, maybe He'll see our sincerity and our earnestness, which is often a joke anyways, by the way, and then He'll be pleased with us. In other words, what lifts the condemnation again is how serious you are about getting back in right favor with God. Dear friends, listen. There is therefore... Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you're at your best and when you're at your worst, Jesus Christ died for you. And what that means is, God already loved you and gave His Son for you when you were at your worst. How in the world can you possibly screw it up to remove God's love from you? Does that not begin to set you free tonight? You see, some of y'all desperately need to know that because you've lived a half semester and you're like, I don't know how I'm living myself. How can God love me? And I'll tell you how He can love you. He's looking at Jesus' merit, not yours. He's looking at what Jesus has done, not you. And that is really amazing news. A life in the Spirit, a life empowered by the Spirit is one of freedom. Secondly, a life of the Spirit is also a life of indwelling. Now this is really interesting. Indwelling is sort of a weird word, but it means a living in. That word dwell means to live in. Let me take a sip of water and I'll tell you what I mean. That was gross. Sorry, y'all. Here we go. Here's what I mean by the indwelling. Take a look at verse 11. Do you see what happens? It says this, that if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your immortal bodies. All throughout this text, verse 11 being a highlight of it, Paul is saying this. Hang with me on this because we're going to do some theology here. Okay, Paul is saying that when you get converted, when you go from death to life, when you go from being not a Christian to a Christian, God sends His Spirit inside you. You are now indwelled by the Spirit. It takes up residence. He takes up Spirit is a He, not an it. He takes up residence in your life. And He now animates your life in all aspects of your life. And what that means is, is that now, I know it, it might be so simple for some of you, but it might be so profound for others, that God Himself dwells within you. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is not a force. It's not like, you know, these aren't the droids you're looking for sort of force, okay? It's not, you know, you can shoot lasers out of your fingers. It's not something that you magically just sort of, you know, you kind of make, I don't know, you poof things or something. I don't know. 
It's not a wizarding trick. The Holy Spirit is God dwelling within you. And the idea here is that that is so important so that you can know who you actually are. Secondly, it means this. What does the Holy Spirit actually do? Okay, this is where it gets really fun. Because what the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit bores down into your life and goes to that part of your heart that wants things. Have you ever thought about your heart being a wanter? Something that desires something? I mean, think about it. All of us are desiring something. We have some vision of the good life, and whatever that vision is, we want the things that are going to get us to that good life. So for some of us, it will be, I want to make lots of money, and so we go the route of, like, we've got to find a job that's going to make a lot of money. Right? And some of us want approval and acceptance, so we'll do whatever we can, right, to sort of find ourselves... <laughs> people that will affirm us. By the way, this is what Paul is talking about when he says setting the mind on. It's what we think about. It's what consumes us. It's what gets the energies of our thought. The idea is is that the heart and the mind in this Greek thought really go together. And the idea is, is that the Holy Spirit comes in, here it is, and begins to rewire and to begin to reprogram the very wanting apparatus, your desirer, that thing inside of you that wants and desires, that the Holy Spirit comes in and reorients it. He shapes it. He goes to work on it, to remake it, so that, here it is, you begin to want not all of the wrong things, but all of the right things. That you begin to long not after the flesh, Paul says, but after the Spirit. And that is huge because it means this. Listen, you cannot change your own heart. You can't do it. Only God and the person of the Holy Spirit can do that. And so the real change that will, bring, that will come in your life is brought about by the Holy Spirit. I want to read a story to you. Um, I have to pull it on my cell phone because it was a late addition to my sermon tonight. But it comes from, as you probably guess, one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis. And he tells the story of how an artist working with a canvas to make this painting perfect. For those of you who are artists, you'll get this more than others. But try to hang in there um, with me on this. I'm going to read. It's a little bit of an extended quote, but I love it. Listen, it says this. He's talking about us. He says, we are, not metaphorically, but in a very truth, a divine work of art. Something that God is making, and therefore something with which He will not be satisfied until it has a certain character. Here again, we come up against what I have called the intolerable compliment. I love that language. Here it is. Here's the illustration. Over a sketch made idly to amuse a child, an artist may not take too much trouble. He may be content to let it go, even though it's not as exactly as he meant it to be. But over the great picture of his life, the work which he loves, though in a different fashion, as intensely as a man loves a woman or a mother a child, he will take endless trouble and would doubtless thereby give endless trouble to the picture if it were sentient. That just means if it thought, if it were feeling. Here it is. One can imagine a sentient picture 
after being rubbed and scraped and being recommenced for the tenth time, wishing that it were only a thumbnail sketch, whose making was over in a minute. In the same way, it is natural for us to wish that God had designed for us a less glorious and less arduous destiny. But then we are wishing not for more love, but for less. What's Lewis saying? In the same way that an author, the same way that an artist, the same way that a playwright creates their work and scratches it out and redoes it, that is what God has promised to do to you and me in the person of the Holy Spirit by taking up residence in our own lives and shaping and changing us. Y'all, that is huge. Because it means this. It means that the indwelling of God in your heart and life means that God is making you at this present moment, no matter how you feel, no matter how, how much sin is kicking your booty, no matter what oppression you may face, no matter what persecution you may face, that God at this very moment is working on you like His masterpiece. And He will complete it. And the promise is the fact that when God comes and indwells in you, He always, always, always finishes the work He starts. Why might that be an encouragement to you? Very simply, I want you to see that no matter where you are at tonight, no matter where you're wrestling with or struggling with, that God indwells you by the Holy Spirit. And He has promised to make you more like Jesus and He will not quit until He is finished. And that is incredibly hopeful in times of our deepest struggle, y'all. The life empowered by the Spirit looks like a life of indwelling. The last bit here, a life of fighting. Let's take a look at these last two verses here. And maybe can get really, really practical for you here in a moment. What do I mean by this life of fighting? We'll look in verses 12 and 13. Now that the Spirit indwells us, Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh. We owe the flesh nothing, in other words, to live according to the flesh. Here it is. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. What in the world is Paul talking about? I'm simply saying this. The Christian life is one of us continually fighting against sin. And how in the world are we going to fight that sin? Paul tells us in verse 13, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. Here's what I mean by this. Paul is telling us that the sum total of the Christian life is one where you and me, that throughout our life, every day, is a battle where we kill sin. And you may say, wait a second, I thought that God was the one that did all this stuff in me. Why are you talking about now i got to kill it? Well, listen, the doctrine of sanctification, this idea of us being changed into Christ's likeness, is both a work of God and a work of ours, where we take up, through obedience, through all the means necessary that God has given us to wage war against sin in our life. Paul is saying this, that sin is no laughing matter. That sin is serious. 
and that sin can and will destroy you. Now you may say, hold up, Ryan. You just told me that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. How can you now say that sin will destroy me? And I'm going to tell you how. For those who Christ really saves, He really completes this work of grace in you. And what that means is, is the promise of you winning the battle is rooted in the fact that God has done everything for you in Christ. And therefore, our killing sin, here it is, is the product of God having done that work for us. And therefore, what that means is that if you are a Christian today and you never fight and you never wrestle, and you never say no to sin in your life, if it just runs rampant in your life with whatever ex-pet sin or pet sins are there, that what that means is, is you ought to be sobered by that. Because it means that sin may have you and you may have never been united to Christ in the first place. That's what that means. That is very sobering. Our works, our obedience, our change flows out of our justification. What God has done in us, the no condemnation, as I just said, (laughs) sets us free to live a life of holiness and obedience. And we do that daily by fighting sin. There's a pastor named John Owen. He put it this way, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And that is true. That's exactly what Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13 are telling us. It's serious stuff, but it's also a battle that if you are in Christ Jesus, that you will win. Okay, I told you I want to be practical about this. I'm going to give two quick illustrations. How in the world could we fight this idea for those of us, you don't have to raise your hands, who really struggle with worry about the future? Okay? Jesus says, do not worry about your life. Okay, there it is. All right? The command is to not worry. There's probably a lot of worriers in here. I'm one of them, okay? So how now do we fight that sin? Can we get practical for a moment? How do we kill that worry by the Spirit? Here's how we do it. One, you go back to the promises made to you in the Gospel. What is worry? Worry is this. Worry is thinking that God will not get it right in your life. Does that make sense? Worry is really about arrogance. Worry is about you thinking that you know more about what God ought to do in your life than you do. And so worry exposes our own superiority over God. Now, what does the gospel do? How does God comfort us? How does he comfort us with the word? And we apply this and we believe it and we see the beauty of Jesus, which is what the Spirit does. The Spirit illumines to us the work of Jesus for us. Here's how we, get, here's how we do it. We come back to the gospel and we see that Christ has promised to take care of your life. He's promised to take care of your life. And so the way that you fight worry in that moment, when you're thinking about your future, you say, I might be struggling with it, but the idea is is that Christ has promised me that He will take care of me. And when that begins to sink down into your bones, you begin to worry less. That's how that works. Secondly, how many folks are in here are people, pleasers, approval sucks like me? Don't have to raise your hands, right? I mean, I just I want you to like me so badly. It's not even funny. That's how insecure I am, okay? And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
because you're worried that nobody's going to call you on a Friday night. You can't ever make commitments. You've got FOMO like crazy, right? Because you're afraid that you've got to keep everybody pleased with you, okay? How do we fight the gospel here? Well, here's what it is. Approval, this idol of approval, is saying that what really matters more than Jesus' love for me is what people think of me. And the way that we fight that by the Spirit is we come back to the promises made to us in the gospel. We see the beauty of Jesus at work for us, and we see Him saying, I love you even when you fail me. Your friends won't do that. Your spouse can never do that for you. Not ultimately. Your children will never do that for you. Only I can be the one that when, even when you fail me, I forgive you. That's the way the gospel goes to work on us. It's the way that we begin to take heart and to take hold of the promises that come to us because of our justification. And we begin to live life on the basis of those. Very, very practical stuff here. That is the way that you fight sin. And we have to, you'd have to spell it out for every particular thing, whether it's sexual temptation stuff, whether it's gossip. Some of you have, you know, you're wondering, man, I, you know, I just can't keep from talking bad about people all the time. The gospel meets us there in those different ways. You see what I'm saying? Does this make sense? I know it's a bit tricky, but I want you all to see how very practical it is. Okay, we're going to close. We're going to land the plane. And I want to share this story with you. This comes from a book called United with Christ. This comes from a minister named Rankin Wilburn. And he's talking about how once we um, know the amazing love and kindness, the no condemnation that comes to us in the gospel, how that begins to liberate us. And he does it with a very cultural, uh, apropos illustration from that television, from the television show um, American Idol. He writes this. At the end of each season... When the competition is over and the winner has been crowned, what do they do? Does anybody remember? Like, they've won, what happens? Anybody know? Come on, y'all seen it. What happens right after all the confetti's falling? What's happening? There's crying, all that stuff. But what does the winner do? They sing, right? They sing, right? Okay, listen. Listen to what he says. When the competition was over and the winner had been crowned, she took up the microphone and sang one more time. Here it is. But she was no longer singing to win. She was singing because she had won. She had nothing more to prove or to earn. Instead, the chosen and honored performer could sing with all her heart, delighting in her gifts for the benefits of others. That's the freedom from anxiety the gospel gives you. You've already been chosen and crowned in Christ. So now you can do what you do with all of your energy, delighting in whatever God's gifts God has given you for the benefit of serving others. That really is the picture, y'all, of what this life empowered by the Spirit looks like. Y'all, if you are in Christ, it is finished. There is no condemnation for you ever again. There is not one iota of God's justice God's wrath that remains for you, it was exhausted in the person of Jesus. Hallelujah. And therefore, you have His forever acceptance. And that begins to liberate you. Liberate you to begin to take up the battle and to fight sin uh, as He enables you by the Spirit.